This is Time and Other Thieves, Reflections and Conversations on the Nature of Existence. This episode originally aired in radio format on October 6th, 2022. I'm Sarah B, and today I'm going to talk about week 12 of The Artist's Way. rejoicing music because The Artist's Way is a 12-week course in discovering and recovering the creative self, which means that this is the last episode I'm going to devote to it. If you haven't tuned in to Time and Other Thieves for the past 12 weeks, then you don't know that I've been doing a series on The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, which is both a book and a spiritual path to higher creativity, which involves doing different tasks and exercises for each of its 12 weeks, and taking yourself on a different solo outing once a week to nurture your creative spirit. That's called the artist date. And filling three pages with stream of consciousness longhand writing every morning as soon as you wake up. Those are called the morning pages. And I can now, as of this date, October 6th, 2022, say that I have completed the artist's way. Kind of. I didn't do as many tasks as I was supposed to do, Not nearly as many, actually. This was either because I didn't want to do them, which Julia Cameron would say would be all the more reason to do them, because I was resisting doing them, or because I didn't have time. A dubious excuse, I know. But in my defense, I was making an hour-long radio show for each week of the course. I think that should at least partly compensate for my not making a collage or drawing a life pie or starting an image file to represent my dreams and aspirations. There were many others I didn't do, I'm not proud to say. And if I had it to do again for the first time, I would not make a radio show episode for each week that I did while I was doing it. I would have more time and energy to really do the tasks and sit with them. But as I've mentioned before, making this Artist's Way series was a way for me to get a little breathing room when it came to producing this show. It allowed me to read less just a chapter a week instead of what would normally be, on many weeks, a whole book. And it allowed me to write more about my own experience, which is my favorite kind of writing to do, which I say without a whiff of shame for being self-centered. Of course I'm self-centered. We all are. It's just that only some of us choose to express it in creative ways. I've had regrets about starting this Artist's Way series, worried I'd lose some listeners, Worried I was boring people talking about the same book for so many weeks. But then I'd think, I'm talking about so much more than the artist's way, and if people can't hear that, then they probably aren't meant to be listening to my show anyway. And even if I were talking about the artist's way and nothing else for 12 weeks running, that would mean I was talking about creativity for 12 weeks running, and that would be a good thing, a needed thing. I started this series by saying that it was my very small contribution to making the world a better place. If we consumed half as much content about the spirituality of creativity as we do the news or pretty much any other content, we'd be happier and healthier, I've no doubt. Assuming we acted on that content, of course, which is what the artist's way demands that we do. And in so doing, we feel more at home in ourselves. This is what the world needs. Humans who feel at home in themselves, like they have within themselves all they will ever require to meet any of life's challenges, and they don't need anyone else or anything else to give them that sense of confidence and ease. 
The world needs humans who love themselves and trust themselves. When I put it in plural like that, I see it could be read as humans loving and trusting one another, which is also what the world needs, but that can't happen until I love and trust myself and you love and trust yourself. And we don't do this through thinking or through talking ourselves into it. We do it through action. Theodore Roosevelt comes to mind. His motto was, Get Action. It's how he dealt with the profound grief of losing his beloved father when he was 19, and when he was 26, losing his mother and first wife, who'd just given birth to their first child, within 11 hours of each other. He wasn't great at sitting still, sure, but in general I think that his action-oriented way of dealing with grief was healthy compared to lots of other ways. If you haven't seen the Ken Burns documentary on the Roosevelt's, by the way, I highly, highly recommend it. I was especially enthralled by the character of Teddy Roosevelt. Anyway, the artist's way insists that we get action, too. It insists that we write things, make things, go places, take risks. This is how we see what we're really made of, that what we're really made of is life itself, that we are just part of its flow. In reading the actual book, Cameron's many loving assertions about synchronicity, abundance, self-compassion, and the like... You cannot help but examine the ways in which you've resisted surrendering to that flow and finding your place in the current. I, for one, have realized that I abandoned my dream of being a published writer too quickly. About ten years ago, I lost all faith in that dream coming true, and I poured my creative energy into other pursuits. Knitting, drawing, bookmaking, guitar playing, songwriting, radio DJing, counseling, teaching yoga. The writing never completely went away. I wrote two feature-length screenplays in about two years, but it wasn't my focus. I wasn't putting it out into the world on a regular basis. And that's okay. I don't see a point in regretting it. I had to neglect my writing because it brought me to this point. Well, first it brought me to the point of wanting to host a new radio show where I would talk about different spiritual and philosophical topics based on various books I loved. I quickly realized that in order to talk about those topics, I would need to write about them and have a script to read from. And just like that, I was writing on a regular basis, with a dedication and fortitude like I don't think I ever possessed, even when getting my MFA in creative writing. Producing Time and Other Thieves had already shown me, before I decided to do a series on the artist's way, what I was capable of when it came to cranking out some pages, or as Jerry Seinfeld would say, hacking out another one of these. And in doing the artist's way, I realized I want to put that potential for prolificness into my actual writing, which is really quite different from these Time and Other Thieves scripts, and not necessarily meant for radio. And now that I've made it through the whole course, again, not doing all the tasks and exercises I was supposed to do, but closely reading each chapter and making a radio show episode about it, and consistently doing the two most important aspects of the course— the daily morning pages, and the weekly artist date. I am glad to have made it to this twelfth episode. Glad I didn't throw in the towel for fear of boring my listener. And I know I'm not the first person to skimp on the tasks and exercises. I know many people do the artist's way multiple times, the most well-known being Elizabeth Gilbert, who's done it three times and has said that she never would have written Eat, Pray, Love if not for doing it. And I bet the reason lots of people do it multiple times is because they feel like they didn't fully do it the first time. 
I'm also glad I stuck with it despite feeling like I wasn't doing it perfectly because that's a huge message that the artist way imparts. We must let ourselves do things in whatever way we're able to do them at the time because if we require ourselves to do them perfectly, we will most likely quit prematurely or never start to begin with. And even if a thing is not done perfectly, it's satisfying to reach some sort of end with it, as I have now. Of course, reaching the end of the artist's way is like reaching the end of high school or college or graduate school. It's really just reaching the beginning of something else. Cameron begins the chapter for week 12, whose focus is on recovering a sense of faith, with the usual introductory text box, this time saying, In this final week, we acknowledge the inherently mysterious spiritual heart of creativity. We address the fact that creativity requires receptivity and profound trust, capacities we have developed through our work on this course. We set our creative aims and take a practical look at last-minute sabotage. We renew our commitment to the use of the tools. Faith is just another word for trust, and I agree with Cameron that we learn how to trust by trusting. This gets at a fundamental facet of trust, which is that it's something we must simply choose to do. Sure, sometimes there are people or circumstances that strike us as inherently trustworthy, and we trust them without really thinking about it. But that definitely isn't the case all the time. In some cases, people or circumstances do not deserve our trust, and so we should not trust them. And then there are the trickier cases, wherein we simply don't know if we can trust a given person or circumstance, but we want to trust them because we sense our lives would somehow be better if we did. And in those cases, we must choose to trust. Say you run a business and you're not sure if a certain employee can do a certain job well enough. At some point, you have to just let them try, regardless of how well or poorly they might do, and regardless of how uncomfortable you might feel. In Cameron's discussion of trust, she's largely referring to the artistic process, which she describes as, quote, a process of surrender, not control. One thing that artists of all kinds must surrender to is the mystery that ultimately guides creativity. Cameron says that even the brightest of ideas that seem to come to us in blinding flashes, quote, are preceded by a gestation period that is interior, murky, and completely necessary. I love that she compares the gestation of an idea to that of a human, or any animal for that matter, which also happens out of our sight, except for ultrasound images, and is driven by mysterious forces we could never fully comprehend. Just as a pregnant woman only has so much control over what happens in her womb as her fetus grows into a real baby human, artists only have so much control over what happens in their souls and psyches as an idea grows into something they know how to express. As creative channels, Cameron says, we need to trust the darkness. We need to learn to gently mull instead of churning away like a little engine on a straight-ahead path. This mulling on the page can be very threatening. I'll never get any real ideas this way, we fret. The truth is that this is how to raise the best ideas. Let them grow in dark and mystery. Let them form on the roof of our consciousness. Let them hit the page in droplets. Trusting this slow and seemingly random drip, we will be startled one day by the flash of, Oh, that's it. On my artist date last week, which was at Downtown Books and News, 
I purchased the current issue of Poets and Writers magazine because I thought it might inspire me to write more and submit my work to more publications. I have since subscribed to the magazine. In a section about newly published nonfiction books, a writer by the name of Lars Horn talks about the mysterious process of creating something out of nothing. In embarking on their debut work of nonfiction, titled Voice of the Fish, Horn lacked a coherent vision for it, but trusted that the textual and visual materials they were amassing as potential springboards would become relevant and naturally start to seep into their writing. And they did. Horn writes, I've always found that a writer's task is to uncover what the work needs, from the level of the sentence to that of structure. And the work, in its tensions, fractures, and the long coalescing of its parts, guides you in which direction to take or not. And at the end of that short essay about their writing process, Horn addresses the theme of faith directly, in a way I'm certain Cameron would appreciate. They say, Whatever circumstances you are in, it will come to bear on the writing, on future success. There is a formation of bedrock that occurs, days, months, years, where you cannot see beyond a dull percussion. I still tell myself, still whisper as the day closes, keep the faith, Lars, keep the faith, and may you keep it too. One thing we can do in support of this mysterious process in which we have no choice but to keep the faith if we desire any kind of success is engage with an activity that apparently has nothing to do with that process, apparently being the operative word. According to Cameron, this is where hobbies come in. She says that many of them, quote, involve a form of artist brain mulling that leads to enormous creative breakthroughs. When I have screenwriting students stuck at the midpoint of Act 2, I ask them to please go do their household mending. So in this case, a hobby need not be especially artistic or crafty. It can be wiping down the baseboards, or finally hand-washing the dress that's been in the hand-washing pile since last autumn, or organizing the linen closet. In clearing out literal clutter, we do the same with the clutter in our psyches that's keeping us from seeing the next step forward with a given creative project. And in giving our attention to something else, that mysterious inner process is able to do its thing unencumbered by our impatience with it. All too often, Cameron says, we try to push, pull, outline, and control our ideas instead of letting them grow organically. Joni Mitchell called it crop rotation. When she ran out of creative juice for songwriting and recording, she turned to painting. In fact, she thinks of herself as a painter first and a musician second. While one part of Joni's brain was focused on colorful brushstrokes, another part was cooking up a new guitar tuning, new combinations of notes to add to what she called her chords of inquiry. The last idea from the week 12 chapter that I'll touch on here is one that's been mentioned before in the artist's way many times. Cameron again emphasizes the paradoxical importance of play, of having fun. We must get serious about taking ourselves lightly, she says. We must work at learning to play. I've gotten a taste of how profound such levity and playfulness can be, thanks to these last 12 weeks, but I've only scratched the surface. I have a lot of work to do when it comes to learning how to play, both in my day-to-day -day life and in my writing. 
But I don't think I'll learn how to do it in the latter if I haven't first learned how to do it in the former, my day-to-day life. For me, this really is the most impactful takeaway from Cameron's course. I must make the time to follow my curiosity. This is what the artist date demands of us, and it's also a huge function of the morning pages. The more we follow our curiosity, the more we do with our lives, and the more we're empowered to create. I've learned from this course that if something sounds fun or interesting to me, I should do it, or at least take a step towards doing it and go from there. Maybe I'll take a second step, like I did when test driving that 1966 Chevy Nova. I didn't end up buying it, but for a few very interesting days, it was not out of the question as a matter of course. If I really wanted to buy that Nova, I could buy that Nova. It wasn't off limits to me for any reason than the ones I was inventing. And where the roller skates are concerned, (laughs) I'm not sure yet if I'll be putting them back on my feet after that fall I had. Not sure that particular fun is worth the risk of what could be major injury, and not because I'd be doing anything excessively dangerous by any stretch. When I fell, I was barely moving. But I'm glad to have given myself the experience of roller skating down the greenway along the river. It was lovely. Talking about it now makes me remember just how lovely it was, and I start to think maybe I will try it again. Near the end of the week 12 chapter, Cameron makes a bold assertion. Life is meant to be an artist date, she says. That's why we were created. So in case you were wondering what the point or meaning of life is, now you know, at least from Julia Cameron's perspective. In saying that life is meant to be an artist date, Cameron may as well be saying that humans are born so that we might follow our own interests and do what brings us pleasure, satisfaction, and peace. We were created so that we might become more of ourselves, but not in an egotistical way, in a spiritual way. And that's what the artist's way helps people move toward, why it's called a spiritual path to higher creativity. It is spiritual because it's not intellectual. It gets us beyond the conditioning that is so closely associated with erudition, with having a cache of knowledge on a certain subject. I've mentioned before that my favorite definition of spirituality is getting beyond conditioning, which is definitely what Cameron helps people do with her 12-week course for discovering and recovering the creative self. Creativity doesn't come from a place of conditioning. It's far more alive than that, and in order to bypass our conditioning, we must do things we don't typically do. It might sound silly that going to downtown books and news is something I wouldn't typically do, but it's true. I especially wouldn't make a special trip out of it from Lester. If I was going to go downtown, I'd at least plan it for when I was already near there for work. But I work on Saturdays, and I especially prefer to avoid downtown on weekends, so I made a special trip from Leicester on a Monday, and it was delightful. And making that special trip made me feel like I was special, like I deserved the effort that was required to do the damn thing, simply because I love bookstores, and because I'd promised myself I'd do one such thing a week for 12 weeks. Now that I'm done with the artist way, will I keep doing the weekly artist date? I really do want to. Cameron is quite clear in the questions and answers section that follows the epilogue of the book that the artist date should remain a priority, indefinitely, as should the morning pages. She says if these basic tools are kept carefully in place, you can expect to experience large life shifts. Most people experience dramatic shifts in the 12 weeks of the course, but after two or three years of morning pages and artist dates, 
Cameron says the changes can feel downright miraculous. I gotta say, I'm tempted to see if that's the case for me. And if it isn't, I don't think I'll feel like I wasted my time writing every morning and taking myself on one fun outing each week. I suspect it will be easier to keep doing the morning pages than it will be to keep doing the artist date. I have a predilection for journaling anyway, and I feel like I'm still learning how to do the morning pages and therefore want to keep practicing until I hit my stride with them. Also in that Q&A section, Cameron reminds us that we should approach the morning pages as an active form of meditation for Westerners and as a platform for, quote, declaring to the world and ourselves what we like, what we dislike, what we wish, what we hope, what we regret, and what we plan. This week I've been using them to focus specifically on likes and dislikes from the previous day. On Sunday morning I wrote about disliking the tree felling project that was taking place right outside my office window for pretty much all of my Saturday in-person sessions, and I realized what an interesting frame for a story or essay that might be. To have some conflict happening while just a few yards away a four-story crane is lifting men into the highest branches of trees in order to saw them down then lowering giant leafy limbs to the ground and instantly sawing them into smaller pieces and feeding them into a wood chipper. One minute a tree, the next dust. A paragon of efficiency. And so incredibly noisy. Cameron also reminds us that the morning pages and artist dates are specifically designed to put us in touch with our non-linear intuitive selves. And it's only through getting in touch with those intuitive selves that we can come up with new ideas. The morning pages help reduce the static in our heads, and the artist dates reduce, quote, interference caused by old habits and blocks. As a result, we're more equipped to simply listen to our artist selves and the voices of creative urges. actually finished discussing the essays in the week 12 chapter and have dipped into the Q&A section that follows it, and I'd like to touch on some notions from the two appendices following that, but first I will address the tasks for week 12. Since this is the final week of the course and the last episode I'll do on it, I'll share all of the tasks with you instead of just the ones that appeal to me. For the first task of week 12, Cameron assigns yet another list this time of any resistance, angers, and fears you have about going on from here. For task number two, you're supposed to make a list of hidden fears that are guiding anything you're procrastinating on at this juncture, as well as the payoffs for letting those fears control you. For task number three, she asks you to look back at the week one chapter and its list of 20 commonly held negative core beliefs. You're supposed to note which ones still exist for you and which ones you've made progress on overcoming, and then look at the list of 20 creative affirmations from that same chapter, and write a few of your own. My favorite of Cameron's affirmations are, My dreams come from God, and God has the power to accomplish them. Creativity is the Creator's will for me. I am allowed to nurture my artist. I am willing to let God create through me. And I am willing to use my creative talents. I just re-listened to Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art, and he ends it by exhorting anyone who's listening to do just this, to use their creative talents, because only they possess those exact talents, and if they don't use them, they're not only hurting themselves, but the entire world. 
For task number four, Cameron instructs you to mend any mending. I am going to paint all the baseboards in my house. And for task number five, to repot any pinched and languishing plants. My husband is in charge of all the plants. I have little to no interest in taking care of them. Task number six involves making what Cameron calls a god jar, which could also be a box, a vase, or some other container that can hold your fears, resentments, hopes, dreams, and worries written down on slips of paper. Task number seven instructs you to use your god jar, starting with your fear list from task number one. Once an item is in the god jar, you can tell yourself in moments of worry that God's got it, and then you can take the next necessary action. For task number eight, Cameron says, Now check how. Honestly, what would you most like to create? Open-minded, what oddball paths would you dare to try? Willing, what appearances are you willing to shed to pursue your dream? For task number nine, you are to list five people you can talk to about your dreams and with whom you feel supported to dream and then plan. And finally, Cameron tells you to reread The Artist's Way. She tells you to share it with a friend. She says, Remember that the miracle is one artist sharing with another. Trust God. Trust yourself. After the tasks, Cameron provides a creativity contract, similar to the one at the end of the book's introductory chapter. But this contract asks us to commit to continuing our Morning Pages practice for 90 more days, as well as our weekly artist dates. The contract also commits us to more fully exploring a specific creative interest, acknowledging that in the course of following the artist's way, we've probably discovered many of them. Furthermore, it commits us to having weekly phone check-ins with someone we've chosen as our creative colleague or someone else who will serve as our creative backup should the colleague be unavailable. I'm amenable to everything on this contract except that last part. And that's mostly because I don't know who my creative colleague would be, and at the moment I don't feel like establishing any new relationships to that end. However, I would like to interact with more writers and feel like I'm at least a small part of Asheville's writing community. I'm a part of its therapist community and its radio community, but when it comes to my life's greatest passion, I'm oddly solitary. I want to try changing that. And this actually provides a nice segue into something Cameron says in the first appendix of the book, which is about forming a sacred circle. Here, she reveals what she believes is, quote, the single most important factor in an artist's sustained productivity. It's what she calls a believing mirror, which she defines as another person who is a friend to your creativity. She highly recommends that artists form what she calls creative clusters, which can then facilitate sacred circles of believing mirrors that can potentiate each other's growth. Cameron acknowledges that many artists are taught, either implicitly or explicitly, to see other artists as competition rather than comrades, and she calls BS, or in her words, hooey. It is a myth that there's only so much room at the top. And the truth, according to Cameron, is that artists like other artists and benefit from being around them. 
I can attest to this truth, having participated in many creative writing workshops in my life and having experienced the genuine pleasure of encouraging other writers whose work I admire. It feels good to praise someone else's writing when you really mean what you're saying. I love providing that kind of support. And obviously, Julia Cameron loves it too. She said that her goal in writing the artist's way was simply to encourage her fellow artists, and she hopes it will inspire them to do the same. In the second appendix of The Artist's Way, which is actually the introduction to the 10th anniversary edition, published in 2002, Cameron says two things that I found worth sharing. First of all, she says, creativity is like crabgrass. It springs back with the simplest bit of care. In doing the course, I've experienced how true this statement is. Simply reading the book constitutes as the simplest bit of care. The morning pages and the artist dates require more effort, but they're still pretty darn simple. There need not be anything complicated about how we approach or execute either one of them. And the same goes for the other tasks and exercises. None of them are especially hard to do. We might have to push through some resistance to doing them, but once we get past those internal barriers, they're pretty straightforward. The simplest bit of care. That's what most people need in general, right? No good can come from caring too much. And the other noteworthy thing Cameron says in the second appendix appealed to my therapist self, as she refers to therapists who run Artist's Way groups to facilitate healing. People heal, she says, because creativity is healthy. And practicing it, they find their greater selves, and we are all greater than we can conceive. That last bit bears repeating. We are all greater than we can conceive. If you take nothing else away from these last 12 episodes of Time and Other Thieves, let it be that. And trust that your inconceivable greatness has nothing to do with you. It's just there. You can't take credit for it. You can simply allow it to come forth. And doing the artist's way or something like it is one way to practice such allowing. As I've mentioned, one subtitle of The Artist's Way is Discovering and Recovering Your Creative Self. When I started the 12-week course back on July 14th, which also happens to be the death date of my maternal grandmother, for what that's worth, I wasn't sure I had much discovering or recovering to do. I was making this radio show every week, which is a very creative endeavor, and had various other creative interests I tended to regularly. But what I wound up discovering is that my dream of being a published writer had not been tended to in roughly a decade. Not really. Not with any consistency or bravery. And I realized that I would need to stop making these weekly episodes of Time and Other Thebes if I wanted to nurture my dream in the way that it deserves to be nurtured. So as I've mentioned before, so you won't be able to say I didn't warn you, I'm taking a break from producing this show starting in December and lasting for at least six months, if not indefinitely. I do plan to keep on making the occasional podcast episode, though. But for now, I still need to tell you about my final, at least for this 12 weeks, artist date. 
I was torn between taking a drive to Southern Dharma Retreat Center in Hot Springs, as I've never been and at least wanted to see what it looks like, and going to Granddad's Apples and Such in Hendersonville. Given the seasonal aspect of the latter, and given that this Tuesday, October 4th, was a positively perfect fall day for such an activity, and I knew I'd probably never go if not having this reason to, I opted for Granddad's. It was my first time going to any apple orchard, aside from the small one my husband is cultivating in our yard. I took the longest route of the three my phone's GPS offered, so I could avoid 26 and enjoy some pretty back roads. En route, I started re-listening to Jerry Seinfeld's recent book, Is This Anything? Which meant I was smiling for the entire hour-long drive, if not laughing. And once at Granddad's, I walked around the grounds a little, considered paying five bucks to do the corn maze, but thought better of it, thought I might really get lost in there. I'd want someone to do it with me, and this being an artist date, I was alone. So I bought a peck of apples, getting at least one of every variety, some of which I'd never heard of. And I bought some apple butter and an apple cider donut and some hot apple cider, enjoying the latter two in a sun-soaked Adirondack by the lovely pond down the hill from the store and bakery, where on weekends kids can fire apple cannons at the big target on the opposite shore. The donut was so delicious I thought my brain might explode, and the cider was wickedly sweet but I liked that it was wickedly sweet. I paid no mind to the sugar Nazi voices in my head that tried to make me feel bad about having a donut and cider in the same sitting. I could have sat there sipping cider for a much longer period of time if not for the yellow jacket who came along wanting some sips of his own. And there you have it. That is all I have to say about the artist's way and all I will be saying about it for a good long while, at least in any official way. I'm excited to get back into my usual swing of things for these last couple months of Making Time and Other Thieves episodes for you each week. I'm especially excited about next week's episode when I will share a conversation I recently had with my favorite college professor and one of my all-time favorite people, Joseph Bethanti. Mr. Bethanti is an award-winning writer and was North Carolina's Poet Laureate from 2012 to 2014. I'm Sarah B., and I thank you so much for listening today.